software is broken, but it can be fixed. Testable Superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. Testable is hiring empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in Ruby, JavaScript, Elixir, and a lot more. Testable trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a remote 100% employee-owned software consulting agency. Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety while working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at Test Double. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash greater. That's link.testdouble.com slash greater. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Artie Starr. Thanks, John, and I'm here with our guest today, Kate Marshall. Kate is a copywriter and inclusivity activist living in Denver. Since entering tech four years ago, she's toured the marketing org from paid efforts to podcast host, eventually falling in love with the world of copy. With this work, she hopes to make the web a more welcoming place using the power of words. Outside of Webflow, you'll find Kate opening Kula, a donation-based yoga studio, and bopping around the Mile High City with her partner, Leah. Welcome to the show, Kate. Hi, thank you so much. So we always start our shows with our famous first question, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? My superpower, I've been thinking about this, my superpower is empathy. It can also be one of my biggest downfalls. Which I actually think happens more often than not with any superpower. You know, I once heard from a child, actually, they always seem to know best that too much of the good, good is bad, bad. (laughs) So, yeah. So it turns out sometimes too much empathy can be too overwhelming for my system, but it has really driven everything that I've done in my career and my personal life. And as for how I acquired it, I don't know that you can really acquire empathy. I think it's just something you have or you don't. I've always been extremely intuitive. And, you know, if you're going through something, it's likely that I can feel it. So I think I'm just, (laughs) I hate to steal Maybelline's line, but I think I was born with it. You know, you talked about, you know, having a downside there and and I've heard, and I'm curious because most people talk about empathy as a positive thing and, and you know, wanting more people to develop more empathy. Uh, But I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about like what you see the downsides are. Yeah. I mean, as someone who struggles with her own mental health issues, it can be really overwhelming for me to really take on whatever it is you're going through, especially if it's a loved one, you tend to care more about what they're feeling or what they're going through. And an empath truly does absorb the energy of what's happening around them. So although it does influence a lot of the work that I do, both in my full-time career and opening my yoga studio and, you know, kind of everything in between, it's also kind of hard to sometimes to set those boundaries, to set healthy, really energetic boundaries. You know, I think it's I mean, it's hard enough to like voice your boundaries to people, right? But 
setting energetic boundaries is like a whole other ball game. So it can, you know, it can tend to feel overwhelming at times and kind of kind of bring you down if the energy around you is is lower than, you know, what you want it to be. So what kind of things do you do to try and set healthy energetic boundaries? <sighs> you know, I do a lot of the what some people would call, including myself, woo-woo <laughs> practices. I mean, obviously I practice yoga, I teach yoga, I'm super passionate about sort of holistic or like energetic healing. So I go to Reiki regularly. I'm in therapy, talk therapy. It's sort of all of those things combined help me build this essentially like an energetic shield that I can kind of psych myself up to use anytime I'm leaving the apartment. If it feels kind of like a high energy day, or if I'm meeting up with a friend who I know is going through something, I really have to like set those boundaries. And, you know, same thing kind of at work. Too. I mean, so much of the time that we spend in our lives is spent at work or interacting with coworkers or colleagues. And same thing. I mean, everyone's kind of going through their own journey and battles, and you kind of have to carry that energetic shield around you wherever you go. One way I've, I've often thought about uh, having those sort of boundaries is the more I know who I am, the more I know what the limits of me are and the barrier between me and the universe is. So the, the work that I do to, you know, which includes therapy and other things to understand myself better and to feel like I know what's me and what's not me helps me have those boundaries because then I know if there's something going on with someone else and I, I can relate to it, but not get swept up by it. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because I was actually just having a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago that has really stuck with me. I was kind of feeling like I was messing up essentially. Like I was not fully able to kind of honor or notice all of the triggers of the people around me. You know, I think especially at the end of the year and as a queer person who is surrounded by a queer community, it can be really tough, you know, around the holidays. And so that energy can just be like generally more charged. And I was finding it difficult to like reconcile with my my idea of perfection in that I really want to honor every person around me who has triggers, who has boundaries that maybe haven't been communicated. And you're kind of like, it almost feels like you're almost always crossing some sort of line, especially when you're putting those like perfectionism expectations on yourself. And my friend was like, you know, I don't think it's as much about being perfect at it as much as it is feeling like you're being authentically yourself and really authentically interacting with those people. And that just, I don't, I don't know if I can really voice what the connection is between being able to honor triggers and boundaries of the people around you and feeling like your authentic self, but there's something about it that feels really connected to me. Like as long as you're sort of trying your best, you know, and feeling like you're coming from a place of love or connection or compassion or empathy, you know, whatever feels most you, that's really all we can do, right? Yeah, I feel like that authenticity is such a tricky concept because the thoughts that you're having about wanting to be perfect and and take care of everyone and make sure you're not triggering anybody and and not stepping on any of your own things, that's also part of you that is, is authentically you. Like you may not want it to be that way, but it still is. <laughs> and yeah. so like, I still don't have a, per- like a really clear sense in my mind what authenticity really is. I think 
probably it settles down to being a little bit more in the moment rather than up in, in the thinking and the judging and the worrying and being able to be present rather totally. than in those other things. But it is tricky. Yeah, it can be tricky. Humans, man. <laughs> I mean, it really is like being a human and part of the human experience is going to be triggering other people, is going to be causing harm, is going to be causing trauma to other humans. That's just part of it. And yeah, I think the more you can get kind of comfy with that idea and then also just really feeling like you're doing everything you can to stay connected to your core, which usually is, you know, in humans is a place of love. You know, you're rooted in love for the people around you. Yeah. How could you criticize yourself too much when you know that that you're coming from that place, you know? I feel like it, I mean, things change too as you get feedback. Like in the context of any intimate relationship where you've got emotionally connected relationship with another person where you are more unguarded and you're having conversations about things that are more personal that have at least the potential to, to hurt and cause harm. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes we do things not meaning to and we end up hurting someone else accidentally. But once that happens... And hopefully you have an open dialogue where you can have a conversation about these things and learn about these things and adapt. Then I think the thing to do is honor each person as, as an individual mm-hmm. of, you know, we're all peoples and then figure out, well, how, you know, what can we do to adapt how we operate in this relationship and look out for both people's best interests and strive, you know, for a win-win. Mm-hmm. And if, if we don't try and do that, like if we do things that we know we're harming someone else and we're just like, well, you should just put up with that <laughs> or, or whatever. I mean, I, I think I think that's where it becomes problematic is, it, you know, at the same time, we all have our own limitations. And sometimes the best thing to do is like this, this relationship doesn't work. You know, the way mm-hmm. that we interact causes mutual harm and and you know we can't make this a, a win-win relationship and the and the best thing to do sometimes is separate even though it hurts because it's not working mm-hmm. yeah I mean I feel like sometimes it's a classic case of intent versus impact too you know like what's your intention going into a conversation and then how does that end up actually impacting that person and how can you honor that and learn from that and that's actually one thing that I love so much about being a writer is that words do carry so much power you know, written words, spoken word, whatever it is, they hold so much power and they can cause harm whether we want them to or not. And part of being an empath is caring a lot about people's lived experiences. And I really see it as more than putting like the, you know, being a writer and doing this every day. I see it so much more than just putting words on a page and hoping signs up for the beta or like watches the thing or registers for the conference. You know, it's words can foster connection. Words can build worlds, you know, for people. They can make people feel like they belong. And I'm, I believe that I'm on this planet to foster that connection with each other and with ourselves. So it all kind of connects for me, you know, it kind of, it all comes back around whether we're talking about, yeah, being in a romantic relationship or our relationship with our parents or our caregivers or the work that I do every day, you know, it all kind of comes back to that 
connection and really wanting to make people feel more connected to themselves, to each other, and like they have a place, you know, with words. Yeah, it's very powerful. Words and narratives, I would say, too. And just thinking about, like, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we tell one another that become foundational in our culture. I mean, it's all mm. built upon words, right? Words shape the ideas in our head. They shape our thoughts. They shape how we reflect on things, how we feel about things. And then when people give us their words, you know, we absorb those and then those become part of our own sort of reflections. And we, we affect yeah. one another a lot. I mean, I think that's one of the things I'm just seeing and talking to you is just thinking about how much we affect one another through our everyday interactions. Yeah. And I think a lot of this comes down to, I mean, it's, there's something you said earlier that resonated in that it's really about the action you take after you cause the harm or after you say the thing that hurts the other person. And it's less about, and like, that's what made me say intent versus impact, because you see the impact, you acknowledge it and you make a decision to lessen that next time, you know, or to be aware, more aware next time. This is really at the core of all the work I do for inclusive language as well. You know, it's, it's just the core principle of the words we use carry a lot of power. And I was actually just chatting with someone in the no code space. We're connected through Webflow a couple of weeks ago. And he said, I think people are so scared to get it wrong when it comes to inclusive language. Like, Mm -hmm. and I experience this all the time, you know, people kind of like freeze in their tracks because they don't know how to address someone or, you know, and then they, they're so scared to get it wrong. And then they're like, oh, so sorry, 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 sorry. And they're so apologetic. And then that makes it worse. And, you know, it's just a whole thing. And we were, in this conversation, we were talking specifically about misgendering people. My partner is non-binary. They are misgendered every single day when we go to restaurants, when we, you know, are just out and about. So this is something that is a part of my life every day. And I told him, you know, that fear is so real. And I carry that fear too, because I don't want to hurt people because I want to like get it right. You know, it comes back to that perfectionism, that like expectation that I put on myself, especially as a queer person to like get it right all the time. But so much of the good stuff lies in how you approach it and then how you fix it when you mess it up. Like it's, it's not so much about the thing. It's about, you know, the way that you approach it. If, If you approach inclusive language with an open mind and an open heart and a real willingness, like a, a true, like, you know, true willingness to learn. That's what's important going into it. And then you're already doing the work. You're already an ally. You're already, you know, however you want to put it. And then when you use an ableist word or you use a racist word or you misgender someone, your actions following that speak volumes. You know, it's, yeah, I think we can really get caught up in in the action itself. And it's more about going in, how you go into it and then how you try to fix it. So I'm thinking for listeners that might identify with being in a situation of being in the headlights and not not knowing how to respond or what to do, other than what you were just talking about with ha- coming at it with an open heart, are there any specific recommendations you might have for how to approach inclusive language? 
Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple really, really good ones. So often the way to speak more inclusively or to write more inclusively is just to get more specific about what you're trying to say. So instead of saying, oh, that's so crazy, which is ableist, you can say, oh, that's that's so unheard of. That's a good example. Or instead of unnecessarily gendering something you're saying, like, oh, I'm out of wine, call the waitress over. It's server instead of waiter or waitress. You know, you're you kind of start to essentially practice replacing these words and these concepts that are so ingrained into who we are, into society at large, you know, and really starting to disrupt those systems within us with challenging the way that we've described things in the past. So just kind of getting more, essentially getting more specific when we're speaking. When it comes to misgendering people specifically, it's really important to not be overly apologetic when you misgender someone. So instead of, so I can give an example, if a server, for example, comes up to me, my partner and says, can I get you ladies, anything else? And I say, oh, actually my partner uses they, them pronouns. They are not a lady. And they say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Oh shit. And then that makes my partner feel bad. (laughs) for like putting them in that position, right? And then it's kind of this like ping pong back and forth of just bad feelings. The server would, the ideal scenario, the server would say, oh, excuse me, can I get you all anything else? Or can I get you folks anything else? Or just if you're speaking about someone who uses they, them pronouns and you say, yeah, and I heard she, I mean, they did this thing. You just quickly correct it and move on. Don't make it into a production it's not, you know, it's okay. We get it. Moving on. You know, just try not to overthink it, basically. <laughs> get more specific, but don't overthink it. Isn't that like, what a dichotomy? <laughs> I mean, that ties back to what you were saying about perfectionism also, right? Like if you try, mm-hmm. like you said, you freeze up if you try and be perfect about it all the time, because you can't always know what someone's pronouns are. And so you have to make a guess at some point and maybe you're going to guess wrong, but it's how you deal with it by not making everybody uncomfortable with the situation. <laughs> and, and like yeah. you said, the ping pong of bad feelings just amplifies the whole thing, blows that out of proportion. You can just be like, Oh, my uh, apologies, her, him, what mm-hmm. they, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. then very quickly move on. And then, then it's forgotten the next minute, right? It just keep everything moves on from that, but you're not um, weeping and gnashing and, and, <laughs> and, and, well, yeah. and also, it means you don't have to keep feeling bad about it for the next three days either. Right. Like everyone can move on from that point. Right. Yeah. And just doing your best to not do it again. You know, Yeah. once you learn, it's important to really let that try to stick. And if you're having trouble, I have a friend who, really has trouble with they them pronouns and they practice with their dog like they talk to their dog about this person and they use they them pronouns in that you know like it it really practice really does make perfect in this mm-hmm. not perfect okay practice really does make progress in this kind of scenario <laughs> and also normalize sharing pronouns yeah it's more than just putting it in your zoom name it's more than just putting it in your instagram bio I mean, a good example 
of really kind of starting this conversation was during Webflow's No Code Conf, our yearly conference. It was mostly online. And we had sort of like a live portion of it. And every single time we introduced someone new or introduced ourselves, we said, my name is Kate Marshall. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. Or just asking, you know, if you don't know, or if you're in a space with someone new, you say, what are your pronouns? You know, it's really, is that easy? I actually have a Webflow made some like year round pride merch that we launched over the summer and we have a cute beanie that says, ask me my pronouns. You know, it's like, it's cool to ask. It's fine to ask. And that's so much better than unintentionally misgendering someone. And we're going to, you know, it's going to take some time to get there, but normalize it. Yeah. And I think there's one key to that, that that has always sort of stuck out in my mind, which is don't ask pronouns just for the people you think might have different pronouns yes. than you would expect. Make it part of all the conversations. So it's not just singling somebody out of a group and saying, I want to know your pronouns because they're probably different. That's that's not good. Right. Because gender expression does not always equal gender identity. Yeah. You don't, you can't know someone's gender identity from the way that they express their gender. And that's also another huge misconception that I think it's it's time we talk more about. So I think we've been talking a lot about like conversations and person-to-person interactions and, and inclusive language there. But, you know, a lot of what you do is doing it on the writing level. And I imagine there's there's some differences there. So I'm curious as to what you see as far as like the things that you do to, to work on that in, in the written form. Yeah. So this is actually a really great resource that I was planning on sharing with whoever's listening or whoever's following along this podcast. There is a really wonderful inclusive language like guidelines that we have published externally at Webflow. And I own it. I update it regularly as different things come in, you know, and this inclusive language is constantly evolving. It will never be at like a final resting point. And that's also part of why I love it so much because you truly are always growing. You're always, I'm always learning something new about inclusive language or to make someone feel more included with the words that I'm writing. This table has, or this resource has ableist language, racist language, and sexist language tables with words to avoid, why to avoid them, and some alternatives. And just some kind of like general principles. And this is, I reference it constantly. Um, Like I said, it's always evolving. I actually don't know how many words are on there, but it's a good amount. And it's a lot of, a lot of things have been surfaced to me that I had no idea were racist. For instance, the word gypped, like if you say, oh, they gypped me is actually racist. It's rooted in the belief that gypsy people are thieves. (laughs) So it's like, it's, you know, it's things like that. We really kind of go deep in there. And I reference this constantly. Also, ableist language is a really big consideration, especially in the tech space. So instead of, and this, this can be avoided most of the time, not all of the time. We do work with a really wonderful accessibility consultant who I run things by constantly. Shout out to Michelle. Oh, she was actually on the podcast at one point. Michelle Williams, shout out lovely human. So instead of, so a good example is instead of 
watch now or listen now. It's like explore this thing, browse this thing, learn more. Just try not to get so specific about the way that someone might be consuming the information that I'm putting down on the page. You know, it's stuff like that. It really, it truly does come down to just getting more specific as just like a general principle. So it sounds to me like some of the first steps you take are obviously being aware that you have to mold your language to be more accessible and inclusive. Then it's informing yourself of, you know, what the common pitfalls are. And as you said, you have consultants, you've got guides, you've got places where you can gather this information. And then once you have that, then you sort of build that into your mental process for writing what you're writing. Yeah. And truly just asking questions. And this goes for everyone. No one's ever like, no one would ever, if I reached out to our head of DEI, Mariah, and said, Mariah, is this thing offensive? Or is this word, how should I phrase this thing to, to feel more inclusive to more people? She would never come back at me and say, why are you asking me this? You should already know this. And that's this, that like, that is the attitude across the board. It's never, I would never fault someone for coming to me and asking me how to phrase something or how to write something to make it feel better for more people. So I truly like it's 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 really a humbling experience <laughs> to be in this position. Again, words carry so much power and I just never take for granted the power essentially that I have even if it is just for a tech company. You know, a lot of people are consuming that and I want to make them feel included. Yeah, I mean that the written, you know, face of a company is going to tell readers a lot about the culture of the company, the culture of the community around the product, whether they're going to be welcome there, like what the, you know, what, what their experience is going to be like if they Mm -hmm. invest their time to learn about it. So it's really important to get to have that language there and, and woven into everything that's written, not just off in the corner on the DEI page. Yeah. That's what I was just about to say is like, if, especially if you're a company that claims to prioritize DEI, you better be paying close attention to the words that you're using in your product, on your homepage, whatever it is, your customer support. I've worked with the customer support team at Webflow to make sure that the phrasing feels good, you know, for people. It truly does trickle into every single facet of a business and it's ongoing work that does not just end at, like you said, putting it on a DEI page. Like we care about this and then not actually caring about it. Like that sucks. <laughs> oh, the, the other thing, uh, before we move too far on from the last topic, you're talking about asking for advice. I think one of the keys there, A, being humble and just saying, I, I would like to know, and, and you're very unlikely to get criticized for simply asking how something can be better. Mm-hmm. But I feel like one of the keys to doing that well is also not arguing with the person you've asked after they give you an answer. Right. Yes. Especially if that person is a part of the community that your words are affecting or that your question is affecting. You know, it's it's such a tricky balance because it's really not the queer community's job to educate people who are not queer about inclusive language. But... When that queer person is willing to share their knowledge with you or willing to share their experience with you, you got to listen. Like your opinions about their lived experience don't come into that conversation or shouldn't come into that conversation. Yeah, it's not questioning the information that you're given, 
But then it's also taking that and doing your own research and asking more people and having conversations with your friends and family, you know, trying to widen this breadth of information and knowledge as a community. And like I said, kind of dismantling the the things that were taught growing up by capitalism, by society, everything that kind of unnecessarily separates and then doing better next time. You know, I've actually had conversations with people who are very curious, who come to me with questions. And then the next time I interact with them, they're just kind of like back to factory settings. And that's so disappointing. And just kind of makes me feel like my energy could have been better spent having that conversation with someone who was more receptive. Yeah. So I think it really is just about being open to hearing someone's experience, not questioning it, and then really taking that in and doing the work on your own. Yeah. And part of that doing the work is also like for the things that you can Google, for the things where you can look it up in the guide, do that first Mm -hmm. before asking for someone's time. So that they're not like answering the same 101 questions every time that are just written in 15 different blog posts. Yes, especially if you're asking a marginalized person to do the work for you. You know, intersectionality matters and putting more work on the shoulders of people who are already weighed down by so much, ain't it? (laughs) Well, I was wanting to go back to your original superpower that you talked about with empathy. And we talked a lot about some of these factors that make empathy a a difficult thing of over-empathizing and what kind of factors make that hard. But as a superpower, what kind of superpowers does that give you? (sighs) Just being able to really connect to a lot of different people. You know, I mentioned earlier that I believe it's it's my purpose, it's my life's work on this planet at this time to connect people to themselves and to each other. The more asking I can do and the more absorbing I can do of other people's experiences, the better I am at being able to connect with them and being able to make them feel like they belong in whatever space I'm in. I can't connect with someone if I don't try and get it, you know, try and get what they're going through or what their experiences are. And that's why I do so much time just talking to people. And that's why I love yoga and why I want to start, you know, this studio and open this space because we kind of, we live in a world where we don't have a lot of spaces, especially marginalized communities don't have a lot of spaces that feel like they're being understood or like they're truly being heard or seen. And me being an empath, I'm able to access that in people more and therefore bringing them closer to safer spaces or safer people, safer communities where they really feel like they can exist and be their full, whole, and complete selves. It's really special. We also touched on this concept of authenticity. And it seems like that also comes up in this context of creating these safe spaces and safe communities where people can be their whole selves. So when you think about authenticity, we, you know, we talked about this being kind of a difficult and fuzzy word, but at the same time, it does have some meaning as to what that means and, and these, these challenges with regards to boundaries and things. But I'm curious, what does authenticity mean to you? How does that come into play with this idea of safety and creating these safe 
spaces for others as well. Yeah, I feel like there's so much in there. I mean, I think one of the biggest things to accept about the word authenticity or the concept of authenticity is that it's always changing and it means something different to everyone. We are all authentic to ourselves in different ways and at different times in our lives. And I think it's so important to honor the real like evolution of feeling authentic. I mean, there are times and days where I, I'm like, who even am I? You know, it's like, what even? But there's always this sort of core, like root part of me that I don't lose, which is, you know, what we've been talking about, this ability to connect, this feeling of empathy, of compassion, of wanting to really be a part of the human experience. That to me kind of always stays. And I feel like that's the authentic, like the real, real authentic parts of me. There are layers to it, you know, that are always changing. And as people, we are also always evolving and always changing. So those different parts of authenticity, you know, it could be what you wear that make you feel like your most authentic self. It can be how you interact with your friends or how you interact with the person getting your popcorn at the movies or whatever it is. Those can all feel like parts of your authentic self that means something different to everyone. But I think that's such a beautiful part about it and about just being a human. It's just how often these things are changing for us and how important it is to honor someone's authenticity, whatever that means for them at that time, even if it's completely different from what you knew about them or how you knew them before. It's sort of this all like this constant curiosity of yourself and of others really really getting like deeply curious about what feels like you i was wondering about safety because you were talking about the importance of creating these safe communities and safe environments where people could be their whole complete selves which sounds a lot like the authenticity thing but you trying to create space for that for others yeah well, the reality of safety is that there's no one space that will ever be a quote unquote safe space for everyone. And that's why I like to say safer spaces or a safer space for people, because you can never, you know, I feel like it's all kind of coming full circle where you can never meet every single person exactly where they need to be met in any given moment. You can just do your best to create spaces that feel safer to them. And you do that with authentic connection, with getting curious about who they are and what they love and and just making sure that your heart's really in it, <laughs> you know? And same with inclusive language. It's all about the way you approach it to make someone feel safer. But I I do think it's an important distinction to remember like you're never going to be safe for everyone. A space you create is never going to be safe for everyone the best you can do is just make it safer for more people. Well, I think about just the, uh, the opposite of that, of times that I've gone into a group where I haven't felt safe being myself. And then when you talk about being your complete whole self, it's like bringing a whole nother level of yourself to a space that may not really fit that space, right? It, you know, and, and that seems like it's okay, too. Like, we don't necessarily have to bring our full self to all these different spaces. But 
whatever space we're a part of, we kind of sync up and adapt to it. So if I'm in one space and I feel the kind of vibe, energy, context of what's going on, how people are interacting, the, the energy they sort of put forth when they speak with whatever sorts of words that they use. Mm-hmm. I'm going to feel that and adapt yeah. to that context of what feels safe. And then as more people start adapting to that, it creates a sort of norm that other people that then come and see what's going on in this group come to an understanding about what the energy in the room is like. Yep. And all it takes is one person to bring a different energy into that to shift the whole dynamic of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the reality is you'll never, you'll never be able to change every space. And I think it, that's such a good point that just ma- it makes me feel like saying you have to be protective of your energy. You know, if you go into a space and it just doesn't feel right, or there's someone who is in the room that doesn't feel safe to you, or that doesn't feel like they're on the same page as you, it's okay to not feel like you need to change the world in that space. Like you don't always have to go into a space and say, I'm going to change it. That is how change is made when you feel safe enough. Like that's why it's so important to foster that energy from the jump. Like that's just a foundational thing at a company, in a yoga studio, in a home, at a restaurant. It can be changed, but it really should be part of the foundation of making a safer space or a more inclusive space. Because otherwise you're asking the people who don't feel safe, who are usually marginalized people or intersectionally marginalized in some way, you're asking them essentially to put in the work to change what you should have done as the foundation of your space. So yeah, it's like, it's a, such a delicate balance of being protective of your energy and really being able to feel out the places where you feel okay saying something or making a change or just saying, no, this isn't worth it for me. I'm going to go find a space that actually feels a little bit better or that I feel more community in. And it seems like the other people that are in the group, like how those people respond to you Like if you shift your energy, a lot of times the people that are in the group will shift their energy in kind. Mm -hmm. Other times in a different space, you might try to shift the energy and then there's a lot of resistance to that where, where people are kind of going a different way. And so you kind of get, you know, pushed out of the, out of the group energy wise. And, and like these sorts of dynamics, you can, you can feel this stuff going on, right. Of just, I just got outcast out of this group. Right. And, you know, those are the kinds of things though, that, that you need to protect your own energy of like, of even if I'm not, you know, included in this group, I can still have a good relationship with me and I can still like me and I can think I'm still pretty awesome. And I can find, (laughs) you know, other groups that, you know, I, folks that like me. And I mean, it, it definitely, at least for me, I mean, I tend to be someone who's like, I don't know. I, I get outgrouped a lot. <laughs> but at the same time, I've kind of gotten used to that. And then I find other places where I've got friends that love me and care about me and stuff. And so and so those are like recharge places where I can I can go and get back to a place where I feel solid and okay with myself. And then I'm I'm much more resilient then 
going into these other spaces and stuff where I might not be accepted, where I might have to be kind of shielded and guarded and just put up, put up a front and operate in a way that, that makes everyone else feel more comfortable. Yeah. And isn't it so powerful to feel cared for? Like just to feel, yeah, just to feel cared for by the people around you is everything. It's everything. That's it. Just to feel like you are wanted or like you belong to feel cared for. It can exist everywhere is the thing. Like in your Slack group or whatever, you can make people feel cared for. Like no one's ever, I have never regretted reaching out to a coworker or a friend or whoever, an acquaintance and saying, hey, I love this thing about you or congratulations on this rad thing you just launched or whatever. It's the care, you know, that's so powerful. I feel like this is one of those things where we can learn things from our own pain in these social interactions and stuff. Like one of the things that, that, you know, just I've experienced is, you know, you're in a group and you say something and nobody responds. <laughs> you know, yes. and, and, and after doing that for a while, you kind of just like sound, you know, feel like you're just shouting into the void and nobody hears you. Right. And it's just this feeling of like invisibility. And so yeah. in feeling that way myself, one of the things I go out of my way to do is if somebody says something, I at least try and respond and acknowledge them and let them know that they're heard and they they're cared about and that the things, you know, that, that there's, that there's somebody there on the other side and they're not shouting into the wind. Cause I, I hate that feeling. It's, it's an awful feeling to feel invisible like that. Awful. But we yeah. can learn from those experiences and then we can use those as opportunities to you know, understand how we can give in ways that are that are subtle, that are often like little things that are kind of ignored, but they're little things that actually make a really big difference. Yeah, the little things. It really is the little things, isn't it? <laughs> like, uh, and it just it's you can learn from your experiences and you but you can also say, I'm not doing this right now. You can also check out, you know, you can also like, if you are giving and giving and find that you, and you're in the void, essentially more often than not, you can decide that that's no longer worth your time, your energy, your care. And you can move, you can redirect that care to somewhere else that's going to reciprocate or that's going to give you back that same care. And that's so important too. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, starting a yoga studio is not a trivial undertaking, and, and like, obviously you're highly motivated to create this kind of environment in the world. So uh, is there anything more you'd like to say about that? Cause that ties in very closely with what we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's so weird to like, to work full time and be so passionate about my tech job and then turn around and be like, I'm opening a yoga studio, you know, it's like such a weird, but again, it's all connected at like the at the root like at the core of what i'm trying to do in this world yeah i mean the thing about kula is that it's really built on this foundational like mutual aid model so being donation based it's really pay what you can if you can and what you pay you know if you're able to give an extra 10 dollars for the class that you take that's going to pay for someone else's experience who is unable to financially contribute to take that class. 
so, and that's just like, that's like the basis of community care of mutual aid. And it's really this heart-based business model that is really tricky. You know, I'm trying to get a loan right now and it's really hard to prove business financials when you have a donation-based model and you say, well, I'm going to guess what people might donate per class on average. So it's been a real journey, especially with today's famous supply chain issues that you hear about constantly in every single industry. You know, I have an empty space right now. It needs to be completely built out. Construction costs are about triple what they should be. And again, coming from this real mutual aid, community care centered model, it's really hard but I have to keep coming back. And I was just telling my partner about this the other day. I have to keep coming back to this, this kind of core idea or this real feeling that I don't need to have like a beautifully designed space to create what I'm trying to create. I mean, when I started this, I envisioned just like a literal empty room (laughs) with some people in it and a bathroom and like, that's it. So you know, of course, once I saw the designs, I was like, oh, I, I I love this can lighting that's shining down in front of the bathroom door. Or whatever. You know, it's like so whatever. So like stereo, like not stereotypical, but like surface level stuff. I really have had to time and time again, return to this like longing almost for a space that feels safer for me, for my community for black people, for disabled people, for trans people, for Asian people. It's we don't have a lot of spaces that feel that way. And that's just the reality. So I'm kind of it's it's a real delicate balance of how do I like you know, this is a business and I need money, <laughs> but then I really want this to be rooted in mutual aid and community care. It comes back to that that care, that inclusivity yeah, creating authentic connections. It's tricky out there for a queer woman entrepreneur with no collateral. <laughs> it's a tricky world out there, but I think I think we'll flip it someday. Like I really think you know, sort of pioneering this idea or this business model, at least where I'm at in Denver, I think it's going to start the conversation in more communities and with more people who want to do similar things. And I hope, you know, my hope is that that will foster those conversations and kind of make it more accessible to more people. Yeah. And I think the, like every time someone manages to muster up the energy and the capital and the community effort to, to put something like this together, it makes it just slightly easier for someone else. A, they can learn the lessons and B, that just there are more examples of this thing operating in the world. So it becomes more like possible in people's minds and, and you can build some of that momentum there. Yeah. And of course, it's really important to note and to remember that I come from a place of immense privilege. I have a great job in tech. I'm white. I am upper middle class, technically. I'm quote unquote straight passing, which is a whole other concept, but you know, it is a thing. And this is the way that I'm choosing to use my privilege to hopefully pave the way for more people and not, I true, I, I do not take for granted the opportunity 
that I'm given. And like I said, intersectionality matters and all of that, but I still have a lot of privilege going into this that I hope turns into something good for more people. It also takes a special kind of person to be an entrepreneur. So you really have to just keep on going, no matter any obstacle that's in your way, you just got to keep on going and have that drive and desire and dream to go and build something and make it happen. And your superpowers probably going to help you with, out with that too. It sounds like you've got multiple superpowers. Cause I, I mean, I think, I think you've got to have superpowers to be an entrepreneur in itself. Yeah. It's, I don't know, man. It's like, such a weird feeling to have because it really, it just feels like it's what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, that's it. You know, it, it doesn't feel like I'm like, yes, it's a calling and all of that, but it just feels like the path and that it, it feels more natural than anything, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And the more people fall, that follow that feeling, the more authentic of a world, the more connected of a world we're going to have. I see a lot of people doing this work, you know, similar things and It makes me so happy to see. Yeah. The words of one of my therapists, one of my past therapists told me always stick with me. And it was right about, it was right around the time I was kind of, so I'd started planning before COVID hit and then COVID hit and I had to pause for about a year, a little bit less than a year. And it was right around the time I was considering filing my LLC and really starting to move forward. It was actually December 17th of last year that I filed my LLC paperwork. So it's been a little over a year now. He told me, how much longer are you willing to wait to give the community this thing that you want to give them? How much longer are you willing to make them wait for this space? And I was like, yesterday yesterday. Like I want to give people this space immediately. And that has truly carried me through. I mean, this supply chain stuff is no joke. (laughs) And it has really carried me through some of the more doubtful moments in this journey. Yeah. And I feel like, man, what powerful word. Like I just want to keep saying it because it's, they are so such powerful words to me. How much longer yeah, how much longer are you willing to make them wait? And it's like, I don't want to. <laughs> so I guess I'm going to go do it, you know? <laughs> Throw caution to the wind. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that ties back into what you were talking about is uh, as you were thinking about designing the space and what kind of build out you were going to need. And like that can be a guide star for like what actually needs to be there. What's the actual MVP for this space? Does it need a perfect coat of paint or is is what's there good enough? Does it need all the things arranged just so in the perfect lighting or does it just need to exist and have people in the room? And and you can you can really focus in on what's going to get you there. And then of course you iterate like everything else, you improve over time. But right. I, I I love that that concept of just cut out everything that's in the way of this happening right now as yeah. much as possible. Yeah. And what a concept. I think that can be applied to so many things. Who am I trying to serve with this thing? And what do I need to do to get there? It doesn't have to be this shiny, beautiful, you know, well-designed creation. It just needs to serve people, the people that you want to serve in the best way possible. And for me, that's getting this, this space open and actually having it in action. I think once you find something that feels in alignment with you, 
you seem to have lots of clarity around just your sense of purpose of what you want to move toward of a deep connection with with yourself. And one thing I found with that is no matter how much you get rejected by various groups in the world, if you can be congruent and authentic with yourself and follow that arrow, that once you start doing that, you find other people that are in resonance with you. Mm -hmm. They're out there, but you don't find them until you align with yourself. Yeah. Community. I mean, community is so powerful. And I love that you just said alignment because that really is truly what it is. It's, yeah, finding the thing that makes you feel like you're doing something good and that feels authentic to your core, to those core principles of you that never really change. The things that are rooted in love, the things that are rooted in compassion or whatever it is you care about. Yeah, community, that alignment is absolutely key. And it's also like when I say I was born with my superpower of being an empath, it feels like like this this desire to create this space feels it feels like I was also born with this desire or like born with this alignment. So I feel like so many times it's just going back to the basics of who you are. Like you're actualizing who you are. Yeah. Yeah, like full alignment, enlightenment, that all kind of falls into place when you're really making the effort to be connected to your core. It seems like a good place to do reflections. So at the end of the show, we usually go around and and do final reflections and takeaways, final thoughts that you have, and you get to go last, Kate. I mean, there are a whole lot of different things that, that I've been thinking about here, but I think one of the ones that's sort of sticking with me is the dichotomy between perfectionism and authenticity and how, you know, I feel like they really are pulling against one another and that, which isn't to say things can't be perfect and authentic at the same time, but I think perfectionism is usually a negative, like feeling like you should do something like, you know, you're putting a lot of pressure. There's a lot of anxiety around perfectionism and, and that is pretty much in opposition to being authentically yourself. It's hard to be in touch with yourself when you're wrapped up in all of those anxieties. And so thinking about the two of them together, is really, I, I, I hadn't made that connection before, but I think that's something that's interesting that I'll be thinking about for a while. I think the thing that's going to stick with me, Kate, is you said our words carry so much power. And I think about like our conversation today about just vibes in the room and how that shifts with the energy that we bring to the room, all of these subtle undercurrent conversations that we're having, and then how a sort of energy vibe becomes established and how powerful even these really little tiny things we do are. Mm-hmm. We had this conversation around inclusive language and you gave so many great details and specifics around, around what that means and how we can make little small alterations to some of these things that are just baked into us, you know, because of our culture and, you know, the words that we hear that we and phrasing and things that we hear that we're just unaware of the impact of things. And just by paying attention and those little subtle details of things and coming, coming at things with an open heart, regardless of, 
how we might stumble or, you know, mess things up, how much of a difference that can make. Because our words, though, carry so much power. Yeah. And the thing you just said about having an open heart is truly how you can put any of this into action, how you can remain open to learning about authenticity or what it feels like to not fall into a trap of perfectionism or how to speak or write or interact more inclusively with other human beings. And I feel like being open, being open-minded, being open-hearted, whatever it is, is just really a superpower on its own. I mean, remaining open and vulnerable in today's world is hard work. Like it does not come naturally to so many people, especially when you're dealing with your own traumas and your own individual interactions and maybe being forced into spaces where you don't feel safe. To remain open is such a tool for making other people feel cared for. So if that's the goal, yeah, I would say I would say just being open is truly a superpower. I think that's the quote I'm going to take with me. Being open is the key to making people feel cared for. Yes, I love that. Well, thank you for joining us on the show, Kate. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. This has been just the energy boost I needed. 